This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today, I would like to talk about one of the most innovative jazz guitarists in the past 50 years. His name is Wes Montgomery. But to understand Wes, we need to listen to the influences, the sound of the jazz guitar in the 1930s from some of the masters from that era who did influence Wes. And probably the two most important influences on Wes is playing, of course, Charlie Christian, and to a lesser extent, the great gypsy guitarist Django Reinhardt. We're going to start with um, an excerpt from one of uh, Charlie's most famous recordings. This is Seven Come Eleven. Now, Charlie really elevated the jazz guitar to um, a lead instrument as opposed to a accompanying or comping instrument. And of course, the electric guitar really comes to us from the early to mid-1930s. Check this out, um, his single line melodies and the way he plays in a very horn-like manner. Let's listen to another short excerpt of Charlie Christian. This is from Solo Flight. Pay attention to how he plays his eighth notes because Christian is really a transitional figure from swing to bebop, although he died very young and never lived to see um, bebop really grow into a, um, a generally accepted style. Check this out, Solo Flight. Another influence on Wes's playing was Django Reinhardt, very famous uh, gypsy guitarist, fabulous technique. We're going to listen to a track called Nuage, which is French for clouds, and listen to the way he plays. And you'll also hear you'll hear a similarity in Wes's playing, the, the, the style that he borrowed from Django. Let's listen to one more Django Reinhardt track. This is Liza, and it's just a blazing piece. And again, this is something that Wes Montgomery was, was very familiar with, this approach to playing with great technical prowess. ¶¶ 
Now we've set a background now. Now we have a point of reference for Wes Montgomery. Now Wes was born in 1923, so by the late 1940s he is a working professional musician, but he also has a daytime job, so he's a worker in factories and by the evenings he plays the guitar. He never learned how to read music and he taught himself to play by listening to records and memorizing solos. And that's something that I think he was always maybe self-conscious about is the fact that he didn't know much about music theory and couldn't read music uh, very well. But I think that's really irrelevant when you really look at the body of work that this man produced in a relatively short period of time. In the late 1940s, he was heard playing in a nightclub by, I believe it was Lionel Hampton. Lionel hired him and he performed with Lionel Hampton in the late 40s, made some records, but the road really wasn't for Wes. By this time he had a large family, he had to support them, and a traveling musician at this time was, was a very iffy profession. So from the late 40s until about the late 1950s, about 1956, 57, he really played uh, sporadically in nightclubs in um, Indianapolis and surrounding areas. And then he would play all night long and in the morning go to his factory gig. It must have been just a grueling lifestyle for him. And uh, his brothers, Monk Montgomery, was a wonderful bassist and one of the first guys to play electric bass. And Buddy, um, his other brother, was a very good pianist and vibraphonist. And together they had a trio, and often they would augment it with a drummer. And that was the group that played mostly around Indianapolis. So he was a local hero. No one really knew much about him. I'm going to play some early recordings from 1957 before he became the icon that we know of. Now, let's. one other thing I have to say about Wes, his playing is unique in that he does not use a pick or plectrum. He uses his thumb. He had amazing dexterity and flexibility with his thumb. It's said that he was like triple jointed. He could bend it in any direction. So his sound is unique. But let's check out. This is one of the early recordings from 1957. This is called Billy's Bounce. That sound on that record is kind of unusual because when we think about West, we think of a very dark kind of um, a spread sound because when you play with the, with the the skin or the meat on the thumb, it gives you a real dark sound. But that sound is rather bright. Could be because he was using thin strings. It could be that the instrument he was using at that time was not the great Gibson um, that he was playing later on, or it could be the way it was recorded. But that sound is rather bright. West had um, a three fold way of playing solos. He would always start with um, single line melodies played with his thumb and then he would go into playing what we call octaves which is a, a wonderful sound. He didn't invent it but he elevated that to an art form. Then the last part of his solos he would play block chords where it would sound like the saxophone section to Basie's band. We're going to listen to a recording from that same session from 1957. This is called Finger Pickin' 1957. <laughs> Thank you. 
So on these two examples from 1957, that classic solo style is really has not been solidified. All the parts are there, but sometimes he'll start a solo on these early records by playing octaves. Sometimes he won't even go into octaves and just use single line melodies. The thing about his playing that's so attractive is it sits right in the pocket and it swings real hard, and he plays the blues like he invented the blues. I mean, just a great sensibility on his melodies. And that's something else that's so attractive about his playing is that when he solos, he the melodies that he improvises are so strong they can stand by themselves as almost as strong as written melodies. Um, and the way he develops his solo starting from a medium burn and then just keep um, increase like his solos like this long slow burn they reach these climaxes that are they're just stupendous the next track we're going to listen to is from 1958 um, this is called Wes's tune and contrary to popular belief a lot of his records were made out in California and Los Angeles and San Francisco um, he was good friends with a great tenor player by the name of Harold Land who had played with Clifford Brown in the mid 50s and they made quite a few records together so this is 1958 Record out in the coast with the tenor player Harrowland. This is called Wes's Tune. listen to a lot of Wes's recordings, the arrangements are really clever. It could be just a trio or quartet or maybe a quintet, but the arrangements are very important and a central part of the the beauty of of his records. I mean, they're very, sometimes they have very intricate um, arrangements where they're um, doubling melodies, playing in harmony. Um, There are drum kicks, and sometimes it sounds like a, a big band, but there's no horn section. His comping and the way he plays his block chords is very much like the way a composer arranged what would write for a big band. And that could be a result of, you know, having listened to a lot of big band music early in his career, you know, studying those Charlie Christian recordings with the Benny Goodman um, group or, or other big bands. We're going to listen to one of my favorite tracks from his first self-titled record. This is called The Incredible Jazz Guitar of West Montgomery on Riverside. This is his first really big recording with great distribution, and this really influenced a lot of people. We're going to listen to Sonny Rollins' composition, Erigen, from the album The Incredible Jazz Guitar of West Montgomery, 1960. Thank you. 
This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. Visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com. Jazz Insights is produced by WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta, Georgia.